Welcome to this new episode of the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Developments in prosecuting gender crimes and sexual violence in conflict. How far have we come? This week, we are turning our attention to prosecuting gender crimes and sexual violence in conflict, conflicts around the world, asking critical questions as to how far we have come and how much still needs to be done. To address these important issues, I'll be speaking to Michelle Jarvis, Deputy Head of the UN Mechanism for Syria, the IIIM. Michelle has been at the forefront of international criminal justice for three decades, and her contribution to gender crimes and sexual violence in conflict is without parallel. We discuss how she started as a young lawyer, working on access to justice issues for gender crimes in Australia, to joining the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia as a prosecutor, and now her role at the IIIM working with Syrian women and looking to develop new strategies to address gender crimes and sexual violence in conflict. We also discuss the upcoming election of the next prosecutor of the International Criminal Court and what that person will need to address in the coming years. Michelle, thank you for joining us on the Guernica Accountability Podcast, and thank you for joining us during a pandemic. First of all, how how different is it for you working in in such an environment? Hi, Toby, and uh, thanks a lot for the invitation to to join for the podcast. It's uh, really great to have this chance to chat with you. Um, yes, of course. I mean, working through a pandemic is different. Uh, has definitely not been the year that we were anticipating at the beginning. But fortunately, there has been a lot that we can do to continue our work. Um, obviously, that's the important thing is, is to keep moving forward on justice opportunities for Syria. So we have, of course, recalibrated. We're working remotely, um, trying to focus on those areas where we can still move forward. There's a, a few areas where, of course, our work is impeded because we can't have the face-to-face contact that we would need with sources as part of our investigations. So of course, we're limited in our ability to be working in the office, but uh, like so many people, we've been able to adjust and, and find new ways of working. I want to get to the triple the IM and Syria more generally later, but I, I just wanted to ask you, just as a, as a, as a general starting point, you, you've been involved in international criminal justice um, for more than two decades now, and obviously you've witnessed a number of developments during that time. What would you say for you has been the most significant development during that time? Yeah, it's an interesting question, an interesting time for me to reflect on. I have just passed um, the 20-year mark in in working in international justice, and so obviously a lot has changed during that time. I started, of course, in the early years of the Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal, the ICTY, so that's really my reference point for looking at the developments and, and how things have changed over that period of time. And there's a lot, of course, I mean, so many things that were uh, unpredictable, unexpected 
20 years ago that that have come to pass. But I would say if I was going to really identify one big trend, it would be this move that we see now from looking at international justice as something that's really provided by one court or tribunal, and especially in the early days, the idea that it was justice being imposed at the international level, to a concept of international justice that recognises much more, that it has to be a much more multifaceted process than that. So, really, accountability coming from a flexible menu of justice options involving actors across the national and international level and of many different types as well. So not just criminal justice actors acting in isolation, but understanding much better the connection between the work that we do and the work of human rights actors, humanitarian actors, and of course, civil society as well. For me, I suppose that evolution is really illustrated when I think about the ICTY, the Yugoslav Tribunal, starting out with primacy of jurisdiction. So this notion that as an international court, it should really have first priority in prosecuting cases and the ability to really direct national jurisdictions to hand over fugitives and cases for trial at the international level. And I think we can all understand why that was the framework at the beginning with the expectation being that justice at the national level in in the countries of the former Yugoslavia wasn't feasible. But of course, over the years, that changed dramatically as those countries indeed developed capacity. There became confidence in their ability to prosecute war crimes cases in Bosnia, Croatia, Serbia and elsewhere. And so the tribunal's focus moved from this idea of primacy into an idea that the work of the, the international tribunal could be used to support the work being done at the national level. I think that's a really fundamental transition. And as part of all of that, thinking around what an international body, a court or tribunal could actually do to support those justice efforts at the national level. Um, so that's very much the the jumping off point for a body like the IIIM, where we start very much with that idea in mind of what can we as an international body do to try and facilitate justice across a whole range of different jurisdictions. I think for me, there, there are two questions that emerge um, from um, what you've just said. And I think what you're focused on is is incredibly important and it's something um certainly that we are going to focus on in looking at different ways to to achieve justice um i suppose my first question is do you think that that emergence of a new approach to justice is as a result of there being greater capacity at the national level or do you think it's uh, a question of uh, more uh, less money being invested at the international level or a combination of both? I think it's realistically a combination of both. I think um, it's not only a question of resources, though, at the international level. I think the realisation is that um, even a well-resourced international body like the, the Yugoslav court was would only ever be able to prosecute the 
the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the the scope and the, and the scale of crimes at issue. So there was always going to have to be a continued process elsewhere in order to try and promote a much more comprehensive accountability. So that's a reality. I think the other realisation is that as much as we want justice at the international level to be effective, and it can be, the closer justice can be to the affected communities, the, the more impact it's it's going to have. So understanding that need for there to be a link and a, a, a sort of um, bridge between what's happening at the international and the national level. And you see that, of course, playing out in the even the framework for the International Criminal Court and, and the idea of complementarity. So I think the the IIIM is very much a continuing evolution of that thinking, um, but really now looking at the way that uh, an international body can support national justice efforts. Of course, in the context of Syria, we're not talking about national efforts in Syria itself, given the current situation, but finding those opportunities within those national jurisdictions who are active in prosecuting cases on Syria under either universal or extraterritorial forms of, of jurisdiction, looking at ways of promoting more coordination, more support for those efforts. I think that's right. And, and and I like the way that you've approached this because it's quite difficult to get uh, many international actors, those working in international organizations, to recognize the, I would say, the whilst it's important what the international tribunals, international organizations are doing, but there are, of course, limitations to what it will actually achieve. Um, and I think that was probably shown more uh, for the ICTY than at any other time. But you've also highlighted what was going to be my second question, which is that justice delivered in the communities where where the crimes were committed has a huge impact. Um, and I think what's what's important about the IIIM, um, and you rightly say you're not in Syria, but you're working with Syrian communities, and I think that's possibly what makes the IIIM um, a novel approach and a much needed approach is that you are actually working very closely with civil society. Um, it, would you say that that's one of the driving forces for the IIIM on how it's established and how you move forward? Definitely. I think that's a really important point, Toby. And again, it's part of the evolution I've been talking about. Um, it's, it's one more strand that we have an opportunity to really focus on at the IIIM. I mean, it's clear that um, civil society, especially from the affected communities, has always played a really important role in international justice efforts. But I suppose there have been limitations in the reciprocity of the engagement. So civil society actors very much being viewed as a sort source of information and evidence, a source of support for a tribunal's work. I think what's different about the concept of the IIIM, and it's reflected even in our mandate in terms of reference, is this idea of a two-way dialogue and really um, mutual engagement between the international justice body and civil society, and particularly civil society from the affected communities, um, in a way that hasn't really been prioritised before. So it's both a source of immense opportunity, I think, for not only the mechanism, but our thinking about international justice and how it plays out. But it is also very complex because, of course, uh, civil society is multifaceted, diverse views, um, 
in the context of Syria, we're dealing with potentially hundreds of, of actors uh, within civil society. So definitely plenty of challenges there in trying to deliver on this aspect of our mandate. But we see some promising signs at the beginning. And I think it's probably fair to say overall that there is um, definitely evidence of a different type of engagement with civil society when it comes to the, the newer um, wave of mechanisms. Now, I want to go back for a moment to when I first asked you uh, if you would appear on this podcast, and I wanted to have a look a little bit about how you got into international work yourself. And I can see from, from your background, both domestically and internationally, one of the things that you've consistently advocated for is greater access to justice for gender crimes and, and those who are victims of gender crimes and sexual violence and conflict. And not just in conflict, but in general. What drew you to this particular area? Yeah, Toby, indeed. It has been a long-standing interest for me. I talked about being a justice practitioner, international justice practitioner for now 20 years. And actually, my work on um, gender and issues of especially women and armed conflict stems back even further than that uh, to about 25 years ago, um, when uh, as a, a relatively new law graduate, and I'm giving away my uh, my age here, but um, as a, a relatively new law graduate in Adelaide, where I'd studied, I had the chance to get involved in a really innovative research project at the time. This was the mid-1990s. And the whole idea of the project was to look at the distinctive impact of conflict on women and girls and to really ask the question from a critical perspective about whether international humanitarian law as a, a legal regime responded effectively to those distinctive experiences or whether we could really see gaps in the legal framework. And uh, I say the mid-1990s because you have to remember that this was before even the Security Council, the U United Nations Women, Peace and Security agenda. So this was really one of the first times I'd heard these issues being raised in the context of, of conflict. Uh, I thought it was really a worthwhile project and I entered into the research with a lot of enthusiasm, but I was really shocked at the time about how difficult it actually was to raise these issues and, and find information that would really inform the approach that we wanted to take. And there was definitely resistance in the mid-1990s even to the idea that men and women experience conflict differently. Seems obvious now, I think, given what we know. Um, but back then, that, that evoked a lot of resistance and concern that this was an effort to prioritise or to say that people, uh, one or other category suffered more than the other, which it wasn't. It was really just a, an understanding that the experiences were different and the responses had to be different. It was really hard to find any substantial research material documenting the distinctive experience that women and girls had of conflict. So that took a lot of effort, a lot of trawling through a broad range of material, even to try and identify the, the general categories of, of how this impact might play out. And I think the other thing that really surprised me was how difficult it was to just get people to recognise that if you have a situation where women and girls globally are subjected to endemic discrimination, which remains the case today, that that must play out in 
all sorts of ways during a conflict situation. And we could also see the way it was playing out in the international community's response to conflict as well. So some of those early challenges really stayed with me. Of course, in the mid-1990s, we were starting to see also the reports of widespread rape of women and girls in the Balkan conflicts coming to light. And so that was a very powerful example that helped us to explain what we meant and why it was so important that we pay more attention to this issue. But of course, what we were looking at in this project was much broader than the issue of sexual violence, even if it was, as I said, a a very powerful example. So for me, I really took a lot of those insights from that project with me when I did have the opportunity to then work within the, the Yugoslav Tribunal, which was still in its early stages at the time that I joined. Um, and although I never had a role of focusing specifically on um, sexual and gender-based violence crimes, I was always a more general practitioner, a prosecutor within the, the office of the prosecutor. I definitely had the incentive to try and make sure that those gender perspectives were being surfaced as a core part of the work that I was doing. And uh, so I think that has really been an important part of the approach that I've brought into international criminal law. You've said that the differences between how men and women are treated in conflict is common sense. Do you think that's common sense to everyone who, who works within the international tribunals? Or do you think there's still a long way to go? I think we still have um, a way to go, Toby. I do think that the awareness around this issue is much greater now than it was 20 years ago. I do think, as I mentioned, that the Women, Peace and Security agenda has had a positive influence on this. The fact that the Security Council over now 20 or so years has been regularly addressing this topic of um, women's distinctive experience of peace and security issues. I think we have a lot more research available now to inform our approach. But it's not an overnight solution. It's absolutely a question of being able to see where the bias continues to lie in our processes, in our approaches to investigating and putting these cases together. And even for me, um, having focused on this issue for a long time, it still surprises me how many ways these biases come out unexpectedly uh, in in the work that we do today. So I think we have a good opening to do better on this. The consciousness is rising, but we're definitely not there yet. You're currently the the deputy head of the IIIM. And what does that role entail? Okay, so the deputy head of the IIIM, I guess just to put it in context for listeners, um, so the IIIM has a head and a deputy head um, referenced in in the IIIM's terms of reference and um, appointed um, by the, the Secretary General. Um, and so the deputy head's role is a really multifaceted one, I would say. So it's a, for me, it's been an opportunity to be involved in pretty much all of the activity of, of the mechanism in one way or another. Uh, One of the things I really like about the role actually is that there is still a good daily connection with the substantive work being done by the mechanism. Uh, I think after all those years as a prosecutor, it's hard to to give up that that connection um, with the the case-related work that the, the mechanism is doing. So that has certainly been, I think, an important 
part of it, especially um, given the opportunity to really help set the vision of, of the mechanism with this novel mandate. Um, obviously, some aspects of our prior practice really stand us in good stead, but there are many aspects of what we're doing that are really quite new issues of first impression. And uh, so, it is, it is a chance to be involved in all of that. Um, I mentioned, of course, an opportunity to continue working on, on gender issues. We have a number of what we call thematic strategies ongoing at the IIIM. And I would say that these are really strategies designed to be a proactive way of trying to do better on some of the issues that have been challenging in the accountability process before. And we talked about the experience of women and girls being overlooked. Also the experience of children fall into that category as well. So in our terms of reference at the mechanism, there's a lot of emphasis on making sure that we pay due regard to those experiences and, and bring them forward. Um, and of course, a victim and survivor-centred approach is an important part of, of what we're doing. And what we were talking about before, Toby, in terms of making sure that justice is more more responsive and more connected with the needs and priorities of, of the affected communities. So those thematic strategies also are um, things that I'm engaging with on a daily basis as we try to really conceptualise and importantly, make operational those strategies in, into all of the work that we're doing. And then, of course, there's the external engagement. We have lots of stakeholders, national prosecutors, uh, civil society, um, other parts of the, the UN system, uh, and inevitably the management and administration side of the job as well. So it's really, really a lot of different things. And the, the gender and uh, gender crime and sexual violence um, in the context of the Syrian conflict was was something in particular that I wanted to ask you about. Um, I, I certainly recall from some of my early meetings with uh, Syrian civil society in, in 2012, 2013, it was very difficult to get some of the, the women activists to be able to, to, to speak out and talk about how much sexual violence there was in the Syrian conflict, both in terms of those being detained and just the, the general circumstances of the conflict. To what extent uh, have you been able to identify um, that and actually get civil society to talk about, about sexual violence? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's of course an issue that we really need a proactive approach on. We know that um, a lot of the more traditional methods of, of evidence gathering risk not surfacing those experience of, of crimes like sexual violence or, or other gender-based crimes or even risk not not accessing and, and bringing forward accounts from women and girls in particular. Uh, I think we've seen a, a big underrepresentation of, of women as witnesses in accountability processes to date. So again, I think the challenge for the AAAM has been to start with those lessons in mind and work out how to develop a proactive strategy to try and make sure that we weren't falling into those same traps. Um, the AAAM, of course, 
has as a core part of its mandate collecting material already collected by other accountability actors, recognising that by the time the IIIM was set up, um, many other civil society and other actors had been documenting crimes in relation to Syria for many years already. So it was very much the idea that we wouldn't replicate but that we would start by trying to bring together in a central repository all of that material and then be able to have a look at it and see where the gaps are. And indeed, our um, our instinct that it was very likely that there would be gaps when it came to accounts from women, um, accounts relating to sexual and gender-based crimes has been borne out. We definitely do see those gaps in the information that has been collected already. So we have an opportunity to really use our targeted investigative mandate at the IIIM to fill them. And we see this engagement with civil society and particularly women-led um, Syrian civil society actors as crucial in this because they are the ones who have the, the grassroots expertise, the understanding of the context in Syria, and they've been already grappling with the, the obstacles the hurdles, the barriers to bringing this evidence forward and I might add coming up with some pretty um, effective solutions for trying to, to overcome them. So we've really prioritised and, and will continue to prioritise direct engagement with as many of those um, women-led NGOs as we can um, and of course other NGOs also have a role to play in this as well. It definitely has to be uh, a collective collaborative effort but I think we are making some progress on that and uh, we are really grateful for the engagement of our um, civil society uh, collaborators on this. One of the things that you've spoken about uh, in the past is that um there are so few women victims and witnesses represented in international trials um, or trials on the international level. Um, what do you think we can do to to address that? I think the first thing, Toby, is to just be more aware of the problem itself. So awareness is everything. And I feel surprised, actually, that with so much attention now being paid, especially to the issue of sexual violence, but a lot of lip service being paid to the need for gender perspectives in international criminal law, that there hasn't been more of a focus on understanding the extent to which women have come forward as witnesses in these proceedings before, and to the extent that the number is unacceptably low, which I believe it is, um, trying to really understand why that is and what can we do to adjust our processes to try and correct it. So for me, again, the experience at ICTY is really pivotal here because ICTY did publish overall figures for the percentage of women that appeared as witnesses in ICTY proceedings over the almost 25 years of its work. And it was 13% of witnesses at ICTY who were women. So it is a shockingly low percentage and especially low when you think that ICTY did prioritise the prosecution of sexual violence crimes where, uh, you know, a large proportion of the victims were women. Um, and it also is the reality in many conflict or post-conflict contexts that the majority of the population, is, surviving population, are women. So, 
you would start with the assumption that women would actually be very prevalent as witnesses in accountability-related proceedings for post-conflict situations, but it, it just hasn't been the case at ICTY. And those um, low figures for representation of, of women giving statements are definitely reflected in the work that the IIIM has done collecting material from other actors so far. So uh, I suspect the problem is really widespread and I think we really need to take a good look at it and try and understand it better. Um, I think the consequences are really significant from this. Um, even if you just think about the, the reality that uh, courts and tribunals, the cases being prosecuted, are an important part of establishing a historical record of, of what's happened in a conflict. So to have, um, you know, half the population's experiences so dramatically underrepresented in that historical record is and should be of concern to us as practitioners. Um, and then, of course, we have the reality that often, especially nowadays, reparations proceedings may be linked with criminal proceedings. So, if um, certain categories of victims aren't being fully heard, they're also likely to be disadvantaged when it comes to some of these connected forms of, of redress proceedings. Um, and I just think overall, it really impedes our understanding of um, what has happened in, in the conflict. For me, I will never forget the um, speaking to some of the prosecutors at ICTY in the early days, looking at a situation like Srebrenica, where of course there was a very gendered impact from those events. So you had the large number of um, Bosnian Muslim boys and men being targeted for killings and the women and girls and elderly being targeted for uh, displacement crimes. And I think there was a prospect at the beginning that the ICTY would spend its resources uh, on the killings, understandably, the, the shocking impact of those, and not necessarily look at the, the forcible transfer side of things, the, the experience of the women and girls. Um, fortunately, that didn't eventuate, and in the end, the cases did bring together both aspects of the gendered experience, and that was very pivotal at the end of the day in understanding the events in Srebrenica as a genocide, as, as something that had been um, targeted at destroying the foundations of, of the community. Um, and so for me, I think it, it is just confirmation of the fact that the stakes are really high here and that we can't afford to be completely overlooking the experiences of, of one part of, of the population. Um, but you were asking, Toby, about what can we do? Um, yeah, I think it's just a, a number of different areas where we have to tackle this problem. I think that obviously um, making sure that we do have female investigators um, within our team are, is really important because I think they do have uh, a different mindset when it comes to looking for wider types of evidence and being more comfortable potentially in engaging with female uh, witnesses. Um, I think that, uh, you know, for us at the IIIM, it is about prioritising cooperation frameworks with those actors who might be able to help us fill these gaps. Um, so, understanding who out there is in a position to facilitate this evidence coming forward and, and really prioritising our 
constructive engagement with them. Um, we obviously need staff with real expertise, with language skills, uh, cultural understanding, experience working with women in the Syrian context. So we've prioritised hiring those people at the IIIM. We've talked about engagement with civil society actors. That's a really important point. Um, and fundamentally, it really is about um, trust building. It is about making sure that we do have a genuine commitment to this and that we're able to show that in our interactions with the people who can help us to solve these problems. I want to come on to the, the point of uh, female staff in these institutions in a moment, but just going back to, to uh, your comments on Bosnia in particular. So, you know, we, we saw that genocide was recognised for Srebrenica, but Srebrenica alone um, was not recognised in other parts of the, of the country. And then if we, if we sort of look for, at a different angle to how sexual violence was used um, in the context of Rwanda, um, did, did you sense a reluctance to, to prosecute um, sexual violence across the, the uh, eastern Bosnia where, where it was um, committed um, in a more widespread manner? Um, was there a reluctance to to really address sexual violence at that time at the ICTY? So, Toby, I suppose when it comes to the question of, of sexual violence and understanding what role that might play in, in a genocide, the challenge at, at ICTY, of course, was, as you rightly point out, that um, some of the cases prosecuting or seeking to prosecute um, genocide for the ethnic cleansing conduct across the, the municipalities in Bosnia weren't successful as genocide cases at all. Um, so there was no precedent set by the ICTY accepting that, that sexual violence could be part of a genocide in the way uh, that it was in the context of Rwanda, for example. Um, I do think that there were efforts made to prosecute sexual violence as part of the genocide argument, but of course with no genocide conviction at the end of the day, there really was no jurisprudence confirming that in, in the context of ICTY. I think the ICTR precedents are really important, but definitely um, having started my work with the ICTY at the time when uh, it was also the Office of the Prosecutor was shared between the Yugoslav Tribunal, the Rwanda Tribunal, um, I, yeah, I think I can definitely say that it wasn't obvious to everybody back in those sort of mid-1990s time period that it was appropriate to prosecute sexual violence as genocide. I think that was an evolution in people's thinking, um, partly connected with this idea that genocide was really all about killing. So, the idea that serious bodily and mental harm such as sexual violence could be part of a showing a, a genocidal campaign took uh, some time to get used to. I think there was concern about, I heard it many times, watering down the concept of genocide by introducing these other types of underlying acts. But of course, we know that the framework for genocide does uh, recognise acts other than killing. And so once a powerful argument could be made that sexual violence clearly is a form of serious bodily and mental harm, so why should that not be put forward as an underlying act of genocide when it's clearly 
a serious bodily and mental harm is clearly accepted as, as one of the actus reus of the crime. So, um, yeah, definitely an evolution in thinking about that. And it's, it's perhaps a marker of how far we've come that today when you have a discussion around prosecuting sexual violence as a component of a genocide campaign, there is already a, a degree of understanding and acceptance of, of why that should be a theoretical possibility if, if the evidence supports it. And, and one of the interesting points that I've always asked, um, and it's something that comes up a lot in in dealing with international criminal justice, is that the the failure to label something as genocide is is considered to be a failure in itself, and it's, it almost seems to be that international crimes being on a sliding scale of severity, with genocide at the top and crimes against humanity being. Uh, somewhat considered as a lesser crime, which of course it's not. Do you do you experience that, and um, potentially in in the Syrian context as well, where we're dealing with war, predominantly war crimes and crimes against humanity, that if it's not labelled as genocide, it somehow has less significance? It's a really important point, and I think we all do have to be really careful not to place undue emphasis on the label of genocide, because as you say, there is no intrinsic hierarchy in the seriousness of crimes. Um, genocide and crimes against humanity have their distinctive Elements And it's really a question of proof at the end of the day and uh, deciding which um, category best fits the the facts in issue. Um, So I think we do have to be careful not to unintentionally um, sort of render less serious crimes being put forward as as crimes against humanity. And I think in in the Syrian context, um, it's a, a very good reminder and good example of just the incredible gravity of, of the crimes that fall under that label of, of crimes against humanity. So I really agree with your point, And I think that we do have to exercise responsibility as practitioners in how we talk about these issues, not to, to undermine the seriousness of either category. Now, going back to the representation of of women um, in the institutions themselves, um, you've already mentioned the need to have uh, female investigators dealing with crimes of this kind. And and I think it's generally recognised that um, most of the international uh, and ad hoc tribunals have very few women in, in those roles. Um, but we have seen um, a, a a woman heading the ICC presidency, the office of the prosecutor, and, and obviously with you and, and, and Catherine at the IIIM. Um, do you think that's enough or do we need to be working a lot harder? Well, Toby, it probably won't come as a, as a surprise for me to answer this question with, with a no. I don't think it's enough and I do think that we still need to be doing more on this. It is interesting to look at the precedent of the IIIM at the moment because it is an all-female leadership team. And I 
think as far as I'm aware in the international justice space that that may be the only example of that up until now. And people do remark on it. It is considered to be an unusual uh, development. And so for sure, I would like to see us at a situation where it's not really even something to remark upon, that there would be, um, you know, women in these leadership positions and potentially even more than one one woman in, in such a, a leadership structure. Um, so I, I think we, we do still have a lot to do on this and that we shouldn't be complacent about the fact that with some precedents under our belt, uh, thing, things are improving. Um, I also think just from the experience that I've had in my career as well, of course, it's not only about getting women into these leadership positions, but it is also about making sure they have a fair opportunity once once they get there. And definitely, uh, gender bias is, is still alive and well in institutional structures. And uh, so, that is a reality. I think it it is still harder for women leaders very often than it is for male leaders to have the same kind of influence and uh, to, to have the same opportunity to succeed, actually. The um, the judgment and the, the stereotyping is just very different. I think about my own country of Australia and the example of uh, our former Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, and, uh, of course, her famous misogyny speech towards uh, in the Australian Parliament. Um, it's just one snapshot, but uh, I think it shows just the structural problems that still remain for for women leaders in these positions. I think that's uh, a very fair assessment. I mean, as a a father of two daughters, um, um, hoping that at least one of them will become a lawyer, um, it it is worrying how how difficult it is for them to to be able to succeed as opposed to a man. Um, Certainly at Guernica, we are not the norm in in the sense that uh, there are more female members of our group than there are male. And I think in a legal environment, that that is exceptionally rare. And it is a lot more difficult for a woman to succeed than a man for many many different reasons. And so I think I would agree uh, a lot more does have to be done. Um, I wanted to move on to um, a question, and I accept that you may not be able to answer this in as full of detail as, as I might like or you might like, and that's the position of the next prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, which is you know, a hugely significant position. We know that there are very few, if any, uh, women candidates um, that, that are likely to be chosen for that role. But to the extent that you are able to answer the question, what would you say are the characteristics and the qualities that the next candidate should have? Yeah, an important question, Toby, and 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 one that uh, I can comment on a little bit, but uh, but perhaps not extensively. And, and I think part of the reason for that is that, um, of course, I've never worked at the ICC. That's really my first comment. And I do think that it is hard as an outsider to comment on the operational reality internally and externally of the court um, and connected to that to really have a, a very clear sense of what it is exactly that the court needs. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of um, review of, of the court and recommendations being made by people in a much better position to, to make them than I am, um, given that I just I haven't had that direct experience of, of how the court 
operates. I can say though, Toby, that um, from my experience at the IIIM, it's really clear that there are such enormous expectations around many of these positions. ICC prosecutor, perhaps none more than that. Um, but even in the context of, of the IIIM, um, the expectations I think that Katrina and I have um, definitely grappled with in the course of, of trying to set up the mechanism and move forward with its work. So, if I can just um, re reverse a little bit and, and talk about the fact that when the IIIM was set up, um, it was already a year before both the head and deputy head were in position. Um, so, as is often the case in these justice processes, a lot of delay. Um, but of course, for the affected communities, already so much frustration about the fact that a year had passed and the IIIM had not yet commenced its operations. Um, and that's understandable and something that we definitely have to communicate with the, the stakeholders about. But I think it does just underscore how the expectations can be enormous and that we do have to, I think, in order to support um, the, the ICC prosecutor, whoever is elected, I mean, really just bear that in mind and, and really try to make sure that there is a supportive approach and, and reasonable expectations. Um, I do think again, from my long experience now in international criminal justice, that so many of these um, these mandates are really mission impossible when you look at them. I mean, the expectations, the operating challenges, uh, so much is involved in being able to move forward in a successful way. I mean, even at the ICTY in the early years, many people will say from uh, back in those times that really nobody expected the ICTY to be a success. How could it be um, given the challenges of state cooperation, arresting fugitives, uh, gathering evidence? Um, but yet, over time, we have seen it can be possible. And uh, I think ICTY exceeded expectations in, in that way. So, for sure, um, I think we have to remain optimistic about what is possible, which is, uh, is probably a long way of saying that, that for me, from my vantage point, I do think that what is really important in these roles is definitely the ability to inspire confidence over this long arc of justice, recognising that it is going to be really difficult to show results in the very short term and that we have to have a, a longer term view. But that's an immense challenge for someone coming into a role and needing to de deliver results immediately. So perhaps uh, there would be not too much disagreement about the fact that perseverance might be the very uh, biggest and, and most important factor of all for whoever takes up this role. And I think there are three takeaways from what you've just said that I think are very important. Um, and I think for the listeners to to just hear them again, I think you're you're quite right in the the mission impossible with many of these institutions. It is it is very, very difficult to to succeed and to have any measure of success um, in, in, in such an environment. But I think when you talk about inspiring confidence, and I think that that is absolutely critical, um, to, you know, to some extent that it's, it's not a, a courtroom lawyer that's needed, but it's somebody who can manage the courtroom lawyers, um, that is, that is particularly important. The long-term vision, I think, 
you've you've got to recognize that you are not going to achieve an overnight success at an institution such as this where investigations and trials take many years um and i think one of the the most important points you made is managing expectations i think that is particularly critical um i can say from my own time in bosnia when i first arrived at the prosecutor's office it was the the message was being communicated by the international community that don't worry we will prosecute everything and and every victim will have their day in court and it's just unrealistic and you have to be able to manage those expectations and i think the managing expectations in such a role is probably the most difficult aspect of the job yeah absolutely toby i really couldn't agree more it's the the combination of managing expectations being realistic but at the same time being able to inspire some optimism because at the end of the day we can't give up on the belief in justice and that has to come through as well and it's it's something we think a lot about at the IIIM because of course the Syrian um, communities affected by crimes have been enduring impunity for 10 years almost now and understandably frustrated by the lack of um, more robust justice opportunities by what they see as a failure on the part of, of international actors. So the IIIM is created in the midst of all of this, yet another UN institution um, in in a line of, of several others. Um, and so I think it is a big challenge to, to really be able to be realistic about that and, and to have that conversation with those affected. But at the same time, we we have to believe that there will be a better path forward. And yeah, that's where I think having witnessed that long arc of justice, as I mentioned, is really important because you do come away with the, the belief that it is possible that things can change and that justice can be achieved, but it is definitely a, a longer-term vision. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the greatest measures of success of the IIIM, um, and I think most Syrians are, are, are more supportive than not. Um, and, and that is the, the, the role that, that you and others have, have brought to it in ensuring that Syrian civil society and the, the Syrian victim community actually, actually have a voice and actually have a way of determining what will happen in the future. And so I think that is, that is hugely important. And again, it's not something that we've seen in international um, tribunals before. Um, I suppose my question along that is, you obviously engage frequently with Syrian civil society, and I know that you're very much involved with developing new strategies for for dealing with um, the role of Syrian women in in the conflict and the resolution of the conflict. Um, how do you see that being taken forward? I think we've made a positive start and we have a lot to do still. Um, it's, uh, as I said, really just such a, a broad range of actors with diverse views. And I think the other part of this is, is also understanding the emergence of survivor associations uh, in the context of Syria, which we've really seen rapidly emerging in, in the last couple of years. Um, and I say survivor associations in distinction to to 
um, the more traditional NGOs who've been documenting crimes in Syria. So accountability related work versus advocating really for the interests of, of survivors. Um, so both are important. Both are components of civil society, but they have, I think, very distinctive perspectives and roles. And so that's been an important insight from the work that we've done so far is is really understanding the need for engagement with with both sets of actors and the value actually that each component um, brings into the work that we do at the IIIM. I think it, it has been really valuable and uh, for me also a lesson I took from my work in the Balkans where we really saw survivor associations having a pivotal role and a pivotal engagement with um, the Office of the Prosecutor, especially in, in the later uh, stages of, of the court's work. So definitely learning those lessons from the past, but really trying to now make sure that we can uh, follow through in, in a more and more structured and diverse way. Um, I've talked a lot about uh, trying to surface those perspectives that um, tend to be marginalised. And uh, we know that there are also um, components among civil society uh, who fall into that category as well, not just um, when it comes to gender issues, but um, segments of civil society whose voices are just less heard and um, where we have less of an understanding about the harms and, and the crimes experienced. So I think that's really for us now the big priority is trying to take the initial foundation that we've built and trying to diversify that much more broadly and, and really get a, a more comprehensive understanding about um, the broad range of, of perspectives on justice for Syrians. Now, one of the, one of the things that we've seen with um, certainly the, the more recent conflicts of Syria, um, I'll focus on Syria because I think we've seen it more in Syria than in any other conflict, and the the emergence of of social media is that disinformation and propaganda has become become a very very corrosive element on dealing with accountability. How how much has that affected the work of the IIIM in your experience? It's definitely a factor that we take seriously and need to build into our analytical review processes. Um, Toby, I think what you're describing is, of course, a factor that's always been there in any kind of justice and particularly um, post-conflict justice processes and the idea of propaganda being used in war and, um, you know, certain uh, strategic interests driving communications around the events and the facts and what happened. That's always been there. But with social media, with digital forms of evidence, of course, the scale of it can be at a different level. Um, so, again, I think for us at the IIIM, that's where we see a big advantage of this idea of the central repository of information and evidence, the idea that we're pulling information and material from so many different sources that we have an un unparalleled ability to 
to corroborate and to look for patterns and things that don't fit with with the patterns, um, and to, to then really probe what might be underlying that. Is it is it a question of the reliability or credibility of the evidence? Is is there some other explanation? Um, so I think it really is an endorsement of this concept of of trying to make sure that we do have as comprehensive a found eviden- evidentiary foundation as we can for the accountability work that will happen for Syria. And we have really just such a crucial opportunity right now um, to prepare for that and really set the foundations for it with robust criminal justice-focused evidence gathering and, and processing methods. Well, Michelle, I have one last question that we we ask everyone in this podcast series, um, which is not always the easiest uh, question to answer. What does accountability mean to you and what should we be doing better? Good question, Toby. And uh, I have to go back and listen to the other episodes I haven't heard yet to, to find out what everyone else has said on this. But um, I suppose if I I think about it from my own perspective and maybe linking into a lot of the things I've already said so far, I think for me the biggest lesson as a practitioner over the last 20 years has been that it doesn't really matter what accountability means to me. It really is a question of what does it mean for the affected communities. And so in the context of of the IIIM's work, it is about what does accountability really mean for for Syrians and um, and trying to, to look at that. I can remember as a, a sort of younger enthusiastic prosecutor, you know, really thinking a lot about what it would mean to put together a, a good case and, and bring it forward in court, you know, my experience on appellate cases over many years, what would it look like to make a good argument in court? What would be the signs of success? But of course, if at the end of the day, the affected community doesn't understand the results of the cases that we prosecute, or if we're putting forward descriptions of harm, we're using labels for crimes that are not meaningful them that, that meaningful for them or that don't really reflect how they really experienced what happened um, then we haven't really got successful accountability at the end of the day and so this idea of having to really pivot in our view on justice and look at what it means for the affected community is um, is really crucial so it's complicated as well, of course, because there's no one view among those affected about what justice means. There's even different views about whether you know, they want to be referred to as victims or survivors. I mean, even terminology issues as, as sort of basic as that just evokes such divergence of views. And it makes it extremely difficult for international justice practitioners to navigate that but, uh, yeah, I think it's obvious from our conversation, Toby, that uh, we're not doing this work because it's easy. I mean, clearly it's not. And it is just something that we have to take on board. We have to, to be open to hearing from, from those who are most directly affected. And we have to be open to adjusting our approach in light of that so that at the end of the day, it really is about accountability that's, that's meaningful for those directly affected. Michelle, thank you for that wonderful answer. And uh, 
thank you for taking the time to, to speak to us at Guernica. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on here. Thank you, Toby. Really my pleasure as well. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. The Guernica Accountability Podcast is about accountability in different parts of the world and what it means to each of us. This was a subject that we at Guernica are very passionate about. We hope that you walk away from this today with a better understanding of the work of the Syrian Mechanism and the role it plays with a particular emphasis on gender crimes in conflict. If you enjoy these podcasts, as we hope you do, please do follow the series on our website and feel free to post on social media with any comments you may have. You can find our website at www.guernica37.com where you can find more details about what we do and find all of the podcasts in our series. You can find us on Twitter at GuernicaLaw37, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. We hope to continue to bring you interesting accounts from around the world. In the next episode, we will be looking at a very different approach to accountability. But I won't spoil the surprise now. Thank you for listening. This is the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.